Hey everybody, happy Thursday, everybody's favorite uh, time of the week. Daniel, how's it going? Good, good. Hi everyone. Hey, hey Bridget, hey Peter, hey Akshay. Hey, What's up? nice to be here. Yeah, good to have you. I'm just going to get the rest of the speakers lined up here. i got Nazma and Terrence as well. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, you know, we kind of all agreed it would be good to maybe take a little bit of a step back from the macro um, and, and discuss because, you know, it's been been changing a lot, obviously, but I think the data indicates the direction the market's heading. Um, you know, and we're starting to see some some changes that maybe require a bit more of a, of a granular boots on the ground solution. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the, the morbidities that we've we've seen as a result of, you know, two plus years of a of global pandemic that we've been in um, and kind of have a, a little bit more of a boots on the ground approach. So talking a little bit about, um, you know, the stuff in real estate that, that we haven't spoken a lot about yet, but um, that, that, you know, bears a lot on the decision making process, um, managing problems from COVID and associated with real estate since, you know, the past couple of years. So divorce rates are up. We know uh, household indebtedness is up. Um, and you know, death is is obviously a, a real and direct morbidity. Um, not not you know probably not one we'll touch on massively unless there's somebody who specializes sort of in the in the space of probate, estate sales, etc. But I do want to talk. Uh, you know, we have a mortgage broker here and, and legal counsel as well, and also field some questions from uh, anybody who's interested. If you if you want to jump in with a question for our panel here, just um, send me a DM so I know you're not. Uh, a, a troll and then we'll, we'll kind of go from there so if everybody kind of just wants to maybe do a quick introduction um the order i have here on my screen is bridget nasma peter daniel terrence and akshay and then i'm going to add in romana as well um so if you want to go in that order we'll start off with bridget just do a quick intro just so everybody knows who, who they're listening to and then we'll kind of we'll kind of just go from there see how the conversation goes so bridget go ahead Sure. Uh, my name is Bridget Casey, and I'm the founder of Money After Graduation, which is a Canadian personal finance company. I'm not in the real estate industry, but I am a Canadian finance expert. So I'm here to learn and share my knowledge about investing as well. And you do, I guess, you, you know, as you documented your journey of, of homeownership um, pretty well, I would say. Um, so I think you can probably talk talk. Or speak to that, especially for millennials um, and and personal finance aligned millennials as well. Okay, great. I did finally buy a house at thirty six nice. in Alberta. Nice. Um, okay, uh, Nazma. Hi. Um, yeah, my name is Nazma Ali, and I'm a broker founder of One Group Real Estate. I think a lot of people already know that, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, we deal. The the thing is, is that we deal a lot with divorces as well on the real estate side, um, and separation, and things that I've tweeted about, such as people who are divorcing but still living together because they can't really buy each other out. It's kind of unaffordable to move out. So anyway, I thought this would be a really good opportunity to uh, give or share some information, especially with um, experts like Terrence and some other people that we're gonna have on. Yeah, really looking forward to that as well. Um, Peter, go ahead. Uh, hey, guys. That's Peter Kirizopoulos. I think I pronounced that correctly. Uh, I'm an agent out of uh, mostly York region in Toronto. And, uh, yeah, this is a really good uh, topic to discuss because these are the, some of the main factors that just actually force people to actually put their homes for sale. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be. Uh, I would say it's probably one of the you know one of the the more interesting causes of of sale in the market right now, and and an especially interesting one because you know probably prior to COVID, in a lot of situations, somebody could uh, could divorce and and each party could could you know go purchase a home on their own, or one per- party could purchase the or buy the other out, uh, and that's becoming less and less common. I, I would say so. Um, interesting to see what everybody else is seeing in the market. Um, Daniel, if you want to go ahead with your intro. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Daniel Viner here. I'm uh, uh, I'm a mortgage broker with a, with a group. We're stationed in Toronto. Uh, we're active in Ontario, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, but for the most part, majority of it is in Ontario. Um, appreciate uh, the chance to speak and uh, sit on a good lineup um, with my fellow speakers. But yeah, I mean, frankly, I, I started I started in this space in 2012, and quite frankly. The market, you know, has been on somewhat of a trajectory ever since that time. So, frankly, there are a lot of, um, I guess, this is new terrain for the most part. Navigating, um, not just on the side of, you know, interacting with borrowers, um, but also um, we manage a bit of private capital. So, uh, this is a this is a new space, a new time for the most part. Um, and. Yeah, there's there's no lack of fun and excitement. I appreciate the chance to uh, to connect and voice and hear hear a bit too. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Daniel, and uh, and looking forward to getting some insight on, on sort of you know how especially these little intricacies um, play into sort of the underwriting side, qualif- qualification side, etc. As we kind of get through um, all of that with with um, Terrence and, and Nazma here, um, Terrence, if you want to go ahead and then we'll get to Akshay and then we'll kind of just start things off. Yeah, so I'm Terrence Reed. I'm a family law and estates litigation lawyer in Toronto. Um, we deal with all sorts of family law and uh, states matters across Ontario, mainly in Toronto. We're in downtown Toronto. Um, like many people, I, you know, I come into contact through my professional and personal life with the state of the real estate market and the way it affects my clients and the way it's actually changing how we have to go about, uh, you know, alternate alternative dispute resolution and how, how we have to craft divorce agreements and things like that. It, it's, it's an interesting time and uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear other people's perspectives and provide what, what little insight I can offer. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I imagine you're you know I, I think you're 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 far out of scope by comparison to a lot of, of us here. So we're you know we're we're hoping to learn as much as we can from you. Um, uh, actually, do you want to go ahead quick and then we'll let uh, Romana do an introduction as well, um, and then we'll kind of kick it off. So, sure, thanks, Daniel. Hey everyone, my name is Akshay. Uh, I'm uh, right now learning myself and uh, working towards to get a certification in personal financing as a coach. And every day I'm learning, and thanks for sharing the space with me, Daniel. I'm learning a lot from you guys, the experts in the field. Hope to share and learn along my journey. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, Romana, do you want to go ahead with an introduction? Oh, I think we lost her there as a speaker. Um, I'll get her back in. Anyway, um, so I actually got a really interesting message just prior to this um, to this space. Um, somebody said, are you familiar with the Ontario Family Law podcast? This week's episode discussed the crazy real estate market effects on divorces and separation. Um, they recommended a guest as a result of that. Um, but a- anyway, I just wanted to know, um, you know, Nazma, you mentioned that you, you know, you and sort of what prompted us to, to do 
um, this topic for a space was started to see some changes, not only in, you know, an increase of, of these cases coming up as reasons for people selling, but also changes in the way that people share the house uh, in a divorce. So, you know, be it in, in being forced to live with one another as a result of not being able to afford uh, other arrangements, you know, maybe rent being reserved to, or, or um, yeah, to renting forever as a result of a separation. Um, mm. And then increases in divorces as well. So I just want to see what trends you're seeing, Nazma, that, that prompted you to kind of bring this, this topic to light and, and Terrence as well, if you're seeing sort of the same thing happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the trends, I mean, most of the couples that we know who are divorcing, if not all, are either prolonging that kind of like divorce or separation, divorce, like limbo stage where they're not really taking active steps to separate everything and to move out. And they're just kind of figuring it out that one of them lives in the basement or one of them lives in some part of the house or even just another bedroom. Um, and some of them that's been going on for one or two years um, and they just have no incentive except trying to meet new people, but they have no incentive to really move out because, and that brings me to the second part, which is most of the couples that we deal with who do get divorced, um, they each or at least one um, end up renting. So yeah, they're making you know a lot of money on their house, but when they sell or if they sell, um, but what we're seeing is that very few of them are buying each other out, and uh, and even less of them are are uh, moving out and then buying. They're, they're usually renting because they just can't afford to buy with whatever is left on their split or they just can't buy something that is big enough for like, you know, for them and their kids when they have them. So. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting note and, and, you know, I don't I don't deal with a, a ton of this type of product, I would say specifically. But um, but to me, you know, it's it's I think we we started like there was a lot of. Um, maybe not research, but but data showing you know that there was more of this happening. You know, increases in in domestic abuse, increases in unhappiness in the household, et cetera, et cetera, as a result of COVID, right? And and uh, mental um, unwellness, et cetera, um, from lockdowns or you know just um, being stuck in the household, whatever is causing it, right? Um, is, is there a quantifiable trend that indicates that that this is increasing? Like, is there data that that tells us that that this is happening more? Uh, Daniel, I saw you unmuted there. If you want to go ahead. Thank you. No, I was, I, I mean, I can only really speak to what I see on, you know, on the financing side, but what I can, what I, what I did notice was at the onset of COVID, the inquiries and I mean, even some of the fundings picked up and the nature of it, of course, was a separation or divorce. Um, and this is when values were, you know, headed in for the most part, an upward direction, um, you know, urban rural locations. So the problem, as we all know, it's, it usually just comes down to the qualifying. So, and you know assuming they have a you know they can reach an amicable agreement one stays one goes more than ever it's the qualifying so even if one spouse i mean put it this way i mean most cases we're seeing even combined income as having difficulty getting over the hurdle so when you eliminate one source of income and you know the qualifying depends on one it, it becomes very difficult um not all cases but most cases i'll say so um, that's, I can't really speak to any stats in terms of the market, as you mentioned, um, not, not even close to my fellow speakers on, on that side, but from the financing side, this is what's happened. I mean, 
we even had a recent conversation where somebody, you know, they mentioned too, boy, wish we could have figured this out, you know, six months to a year ago, you know, they, they believe their values are down. So the, the split um, has shrunk. So some might sit there on the sidelines and hope and pray maybe the value goes up. And this becomes obviously difficult when there's enough emotion to begin with in the equation. So there's just a bunch of unknowns and that's really all I can speak to on that. Fair enough. Um, Terrence, what are you seeing in the market? Like sort of what, what's happening um, from your perspective and are these discussions becoming more and more common around the, the, the house um, valuation, affordability moving forward, et cetera? Um, if you can, can shed some light on, on that for us. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any data per se, but anecdotally, you know, I've been a lot busier since 2021 when people kind of came out of lockdown and I wouldn't hazard a guess as to what attributed to it. But I, I do see a lot more cases with abuse, a lot more cases where people have been putting off divorce and this is kind of their time to do it. And, you know, just by, by the nature of the way people set up their finances now in 2022, the, the matrimonial home, as it's de designated, is the main asset and sometimes the only asset. In fact, most times the only asset, surprisingly. And it's become something, the Family Law Act is supposed to deal with matrimonial homes as an asset that is shared equally, no matter who brought what into the marriage. So generally, 90% of the time, that's what happens. So you have someone sometimes who has come into the marriage with assets, with a house, or you know, perhaps even mortgage-free sometimes, uh, an income, and another person who may not have brought much financially to the marriage. And both parties are leaving unable to secure a house in Madison. They can't purchase property, and it's a, it's a wealth-depleting event divorce. I think people need to understand that more. It's not just legal cost. It's not just your time. Um, so I, I think older... People are getting divorced a lot more now, which is something that surprised me. And those are the people who really suffer most in this market because of their lack of income generally. Retirees in their late 60s, 70s getting divorced. They have hugely expensive houses and they couldn't possibly hope to buy the other out because they have no income. They have very little assets beyond the house. So that that's a problem that I'm dealing with. And, you know, things that could be dealt with relatively simply they become a lot more emotional when a home is something that people get attached to and when neither of them can keep it it really creates issues so let me uh maybe if i can unpack that a little bit more too like because you know i i'm i'm a nuts and bolts guy i really do think you know less about the emotion of things and so beyond that like how much of this depends on or or, or is related to you know, couples, regardless of the age, but in, in the older ones, you know, depending on the, the equity in that asset for retirement, right? And now all of a sudden, if it's, you're splitting it into two households, the base cost of your retirement, um, you know, just, just increased substantially, right? Um, does that, like, is that kind of something that's beginning to, to, to come into play? I guess just out of curiosity, because I'm starting to try and understand, you know, the, 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 the sale patterns of, of boomers, especially, over the next, you know, decade, because I think they're going to be the ones who are moving the market the most on the sell side. 
Um, and a lot of them are holding, you know, huge houses in, in areas that, that, uh, you know, have accelerated a lot in value and, um, really have no, you know, no indication that they have an intention of downsizing it in the near future. Um, so anyway, I guess the question that I'm trying to ask is, is there, is there a financial contemplation, um, when people are going to these separations where it's like, you know, they're fighting almost for, for the, the equity that's going to, going to give them a retirement, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of our job as, as lawyers. We have to kind of put our financial advisor hat on sometimes to steer them to solutions that allow them to move on, particularly the elderly couples. I, I can share with you kind of without names uh, an example of a client who lived in a pretty upscale neighborhood in the GTA. They had a large home. They're both blue collar workers and they're in their 70s, retired long a long time ago. And, you know, through various, during COVID, they, they decided they no longer wanted to be together. And it, it really created a, a difficult job for myself and opposing counsel in getting these people to a stage where they could move on with their lives because their house was beyond either of their abilities to keep it. It was, I think we were talking about a house that ended up selling for over $3 million. And we have people who have pensions that they're collecting something around $30,000 per year each. So it, it was really challenging and trying to get them to move on past the emotion to they were working with their real estate professionals to maximize the market, but the, the legal stuff would get in the way. And it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to create symbiosis between, you know, what is financially prudent and the emotional part, because unfortunately in divorce can't dial out the emotional aspect. People are so guided by it. And as lawyers, I, I also try to avoid the emotional aspect of things. I try to stick to the law, but we have to, you know, validate those concerns and direct people to what's going to allow them to live their lives in relative comfort moving forward. And, you know, these two people ended up, they both live in rental now and because they want to stay in the area they're accustomed to near their friends, but neither of them could come close to buying anything. And, you know, they're used to living in a large home in a beautiful area. And it's it's a shame. But Terrence, were they mortgage-free? They were. They've been mortgage-free so, for years. Okay, so I, this is what I don't understand. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering. If they sold for $3 million, mm -hmm. even if they had costs or whatever it is, let's say they each got $1.2 or $1 to $1.2, why couldn't they just buy something all cash, like a condo, right? Right. So... In this particular circumstance, the condo was going to be a problem just from the perspective of the fees and the area was really prohibitive. I mean, the condos that they were interested in or my client was interested in were nearly all, it would have cost all of her portion of the three million. So elderly people they tend to be interested in larger condos she wanted two bedrooms and it was it was just not even close I, I was working closely with the realtor to try to create a settlement that would work for her and she actually probably spent more fighting over 
assets than she would otherwise have because she felt she needed more money to live on than what she had. And ownership is something she's just been used to. Both parties were used to and renting for them is a waste of money, even at their advanced age. So yeah, and, and you, you add in those extra costs, you add in, you know, what can be six figures of legal costs, you add in to the fact that their pensions are now being equalized and that can eat into the efficiency of it. It's, it, it creates a messy situation. Yeah, fair enough. I, I feel, so is this, like, do we know if, if divorces are trending up as a result of, you know, kind of like post-COVID? Because I, I think, like, and there were, I'll post an article, but, uh, and I'll, I'll try and put it in the nest of the software, but I think they were, tri- I think 2022 was like record low divorces, or sorry, 2020, my apologies, the first year of COVID was like record low divorces. And That's I mean, I, I, and that, is that probably just people trying to figure their shit out? Like, do we have like really context on why that was, why that was that, was that way? Uh, Actually, it was a huge drop-off, if I can jump in. It was like 2019 in Ontario. I wanted to pull the stats. We're looking at 22,000 roughly, and then 2020 was about 14. Yeah, so yeah COVID was probably a, a yeah, big exactly. influence. Yeah, it was a big influence. Everything but, stopped in 2020 except COVID, right? So Yeah, but we could see the numbers actually declining from what I can tell here, just looking at StatsCan year over year. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll post that StatsCan chart, actually, because um, it does look like it dropped off pretty substantially in 2020. Like, I, I'm, I'm imagining, again, like, court shutdowns, et cetera, like, yeah. maybe just a lag in the data, and we don't really have 2021, 2022 data for that yet, right, other than... I think we're just going off what Terrence said, anecdotal stuff right now. Yeah, in terms of, or Or uh, we should have had way more lawyers if we can build a bigger sample size. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay. Um, and does anybody else have any questions specifically um, around that for Terrence? Um, otherwise, we can we kind of kind of jump in on, on something else. Um, yeah. I saw one you, thing. Sorry, yeah, one thing I no, can give a little bit more statistical context, I guess, to divorce is just the the state of the family courts in southern Ontario, Newmarket, Toronto, Brampton they are excruciatingly slow and busy now. So I think that alone shows that more matters are moving through the court. And when you speak to arbitrators and mediators, they are almost twice as busy. Most of the ones I speak to and a lot of retired judges are seeing it as uh, a nice windfall for them because they, all these people who don't want to spend a lot of time in the courts because of how busy they are now going through alternative dispute resolution. So that may give some color to that. Okay, fair enough. Um, okay, uh, Justice Queen, I saw that you um, unmuted there briefly. Do you want to do a quick intro because we didn't get one from you at the beginning? Sure. Um, so I actually do work uh, with the Attorney General and I work on custody and access cases. So I'm in the court system. Um, and right when COVID hit, it was interesting because China had da- uh, data basically showing they had an increase of divorces. And we don't really have that data yet. Part of the reason is because the court system did have a slowdown. So it was very hard because we're very paper based. It took us a long time to become electronic and it's still quite a ordeal with the way that the paperwork works and the way the judges had to adjust themselves. Like it was a huge process to get electronic and virtual court running. So that like basically caused a big delay in the system. Um, I would say when lockdown started, you instantly seen an increase in child abuse and domestic violence. 
And uh, I know like a lot of people like hope for crashes and they hope for economic downturns. But the one reason I always say like never really hope for that kind of stuff because the tragedy that you see like when we work on these cases because for my office we only work on the most difficult cases of Ontario where the judges only send us like the worst referrals of the court system so we see the worst of the worst um so we seen that like instantly and it was pretty bad because um people were locked up like with their abusers at home um we've definitely seen more cases like Nazma saying with people that are in nesting arrangements where one parent's living in one part of the house, the other parent's living in another um, part of the house because they can't get things sorted out. And because of all these delays and stuff like that, I do have um, a number of people that I supervise that are, um, I mean, most of them actually have private businesses, but I also have a number, number of colleagues that started um, their own private businesses uh, during COVID and they're like on fire. Like anybody that I know that does like uh, mediation, private therapy, like even the worst therapists, like the worst people that you can even think of that I know that aren't even that great at what they do are doing amazing and making a lot of money, which kind of is disturbing to me. Um, so I, I definitely see that there's more people that are going through that process of trying to like sort things out themselves and go to mediators and therapists and stuff like that to get themselves sorted out. Um, another thing that I've noticed for my files is a lot more relocation files. So a lot more uh, parents who are like what where one party's uh, selling their home, moving a lot farther away, like moving to like Nova Scotia. And then um, basically our job is recommending where the children are going to live. Um, so that's become a lot more complex. Like today I have a file um, where like the, the mom moved to uh, North Bay and the dad lives in Kitchener. And the reason she moved to North Bay is because she could be mortgage free. Uh, so we're seeing like a lot more of that sort of stuff going on as well. Um, but definitely like there seems to be like from what I, I've heard from other people is that there seems to be have been more phone calls made and interest made in, in terms of getting a divorce amongst people, but we, we don't have any data, but that's just what I'm seeing. Like I'm seeing people that are having to travel a lot more for parenting time and kids losing parenting time because their parents have to move so far away just because of the housing affordability issue. It is, it is interesting and hearing data like that, you know, really to me screams housing crisis, right? When you have to make extreme compromises for the well-being of citizens as a result of, you know, of housing being so difficult to achieve at any level, be it ownership or rental, um, you know, it, it's it, a, a reflective of a broken system. Yeah, and I think it's really difficult, like, for us when we're doing our job because we're basically telling the judge where we think these kids should live and it's very hard to tell a judge where we think the kids should live when you have two parents that are actually really great parents and one of them just had to move away for financial reasons or whatever reason just to get housing and it, you think about the social impacts on society and on that child's life because they are going to be away from one parent. Like if one parent moves to Nova Scotia, they're not going to be seeing that other parent regularly. So it, it's actually quite sad. And, and I definitely am seeing an uptake in those kinds of cases where people are relocating because of just housing costs. I just want to ask you something. Did they, I'm sure they've explored this, but is it that they don't want to rent or is the rental also too expensive for them? Like, is there, there's no option and, and one parent is okay with the other one going so far away? Like how does exactly, how does all that work? 
uh, sometimes the parent just ends up moving and then the other parent goes to court and then the judge gets us involved and we're basically not really um, sort of assessing their finance. Like we don't do anything with their financial matters, but we're basically assessing the kids best interest. Like where would these children best be placed? Which parents should they go to? And, and of course, like with relocation, it's, it's complicated because you, you do have to look at so many different aspects of that kid's life and, and the planning that that parent put into it. But um, sometimes they're also relocating because they might have a, a partner that lives in that other place. But sometimes it is purely affordability. But um, we don't get very much into like, you know, did they try to rent or they, did they try to do this or that? Like a lot of times from what we've noticed in the cases, like they, they literally are just making those decisions and moving away they're not always telling the person that they're moving away but sometimes they are um but every case is so unique like they're all so different but uh no they they don't always tell the person that they're moving yeah fair enough um peter i saw your hand up there do you want to jump in or something uh yeah just quickly justice i i completely see what um and it resonates in terms of what i've seen with some of my clients too like uh one of them just uh ugly divorce when I sold her place uh, a couple of years ago, rented for a couple of years, but same thing for affordability wise was sitting on a big lump sum of money and just said, screw it and left for Calgary last year. And that was another issue, just working out the whole uh, uh, parental thing because they had a young daughter. Yeah, I can't imagine like the, the position that it is. I guess the, the big question that I have, and, and, and you know, it's probably me maybe trying to avoid the, the heart of the issue and get to the head of it, but is this, is this a trend that we can expect to see continue um, as a result uh, of COVID and, and sort of the new, new economy that we're in? Cost of living accelerating, more financial stress on households, et cetera. Um, Sanj, I noticed you just joined us. I'm going to try and get Romana in here again. I know she, it looks like she's been maybe having some trouble staying connected. Um, but uh, but Sanj, you wanna you wanna chime in here with any any info from the debt side? I do want to get. I, I kind of want to try to explore a lot of these topics. Um, you know, the divorce piece we've been 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 relatively exhaustive with, but I, I wouldn't mind getting um, you know in on on the debt as well. What kind of trends we're seeing on the debt side? Um, are are we seeing a more credit stretched consumer over the last little bit? Um, so I, I think I lost Sanj there. Romana, do you want to? Do you want to jump in quickly with an intro and just your insight while we have you before your uh, your spot falls off there? Did I lose you? I don't, a lot of the speaker spots are kind of turning over pretty quickly here. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, anyway, I, I I did have some some more specific questions in regards to so so again we know household indebtedness is trending up right now. Um, we know that, you know, variable rates, I think are greater than 50% currently. Um, I'm, uh, my curiosity and Daniel, originations. Oh yeah, sorry. Origination. Sorry. New, they're 50, greater than 50% of, of the newest more or the, the mortgages. So s selection that's happening right now in the market. So again, still trending towards a, a group of, um, purchasers who are basically calling the bank of Canada's bluff on, on rate hikes. Or maybe assuming that that, that costs are going to be um, cheaper, what kind of um, you know what kind of math, napkin math, mental math, whatever's going on, are these people doing uh, on on the purchase side, uh, Daniel, to to have these you know the, the thought process that going variable is is make, going to make the most sense in a rising rate environment? Like, are most people assuming that the rates are going to be coming down within two two plus years? 
Bridget, you, you can jump in here if you want to as well, and then we'll go to Daniel. Okay, yeah, I and I know you and I have had conversations about this already, is people don't really seem to understand anything about interest rates or what a variable rate mortgage is, because I had a lot of people in my DMs um, that were genuinely surprised that either their payments increased or the term length of their mortgage increased when the rate raise happened, and I was like, well, yeah, that's that's what happens when rates go up. And they they genuinely had no idea. I think when people are shopping for mortgages, they're looking, what is the lowest rate? What is the lowest monthly payment? And I don't know if this is a failure on mortgage brokers to explain what that means to them, but I think people are just so focused on the lowest monthly payment, that's what they're going for. And they're not really considering the implications of rate raises and i also think because we've been in a low interest rate environment for so many years right now um a lot of home buyers especially like under 30 or under 35 they they can't even imagine a scenario where rates are anything of consequence so i think it's just really a lack of buyer understanding has been my experience uh yeah because people are they're honestly surprised that rate raises are affecting their variable rate mortgages yeah, I mean, it is it is hilarious to me, but but I guess it, it's a good indication of, of sort of, you know, the trend that, that perhaps got us where we are, right? I, I mean, I think you have a, a very fast-paced market that forces people to make decisions um, perhaps that aren't in their best interests with, with very little information. Um, and I, I think and I hope that, you know, as a result of what's happening in the market right now, especially with volume slowing down, those days are behind us and hopefully behind behind us for the foreseeable future. But, you know, how much collateral damage is sitting in the market right now waiting to, uh, you, you know, to be realized as a result of potentially, you know, price declines. Um, Susan and uh, Abi Mortgages, you guys want to chime in um, with any insight there on, on fixed versus variable? Um, I don't really have anything to say in terms of the interest rates. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on. I just wanted to make it uh, just add something about the death like in relation to the death scenario, I think a lot of seniors don't anticipate how expensive retirement homes are going to be as well, um, because those are going up like significantly. In some cases, it costs like four to $6,000 a month just to house, you know, a senior and I guess what they coin like a luxury type retirement situation. So, I mean, people don't factor that in as well. Like they just think, you know, um, and then I guess it's not so much the seniors, but it's the people, it's the caregivers, like, because they're, they're stumped when, you know, your, your parents get sick, because I was in this scenario, like your parents get really sick. And it's like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do now? Like, do I stick them in or do I sell their principal residence, stick them in a retirement home? Like there's, there's all these other factors to consider before death. So I just thought I'd add that in. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, you know, my, my big interest around the, the death piece of the, you know, the three D's of real estate, which it was an interesting topic. I guess I'll give some context on, on this before we jump over to a B here. So I, you know, one of the investors that I kind of tried to to have uh, as a mentor in um, in my career early on um, and, and actually ultimately ended up being a client. He, you know, he always said that those are the, the, the you know, almost like the, an ambulance chaser, I guess they would call them in, in the legal profession. But um, those are the things that, that were the three D's of real estate and most often presented opportunity on, on the, the buy side um, where, where you have distressed sales. Um, and to me that, you know, I always now, now when I think about the market and I think about sort of the microeconomics of it and the macroeconomics of it, I, I wonder, um, you know, when we're approaching a generation, you know, the, the generation that holds the most um, paper equity in the real estate market, 
is sort of hurtling towards you know their their, their deaths right now. Not to be too um, I don't know, maybe Sylvia Plath about it, but, um, you know, or too existential about it. But the reality is we have a, we have a, a generation that is aging and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, aside from healthcare situation, et cetera, in Canada, um, they hold the majority of the wealth. Um, and there's these big generational changes that, that happen as a result of that. Um, but I'm just interested, again, that that's sort of my, my big intrigue around the concept of death, especially when you're thinking about, um, you know, the majority of boomers ap- approaching the age of retirement and the age of, of you know, mo- like we're talking about, like Susan mentioned, moving into homes, et cetera. Um, Abhi Mortgage, do you want to go ahead quickly on that fixed versus variable? And then we can, you know, we can kind of just continue, continue to spiral out of control here. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, thank you for um, bringing me up. So in terms of why people are choosing variable over fixed rate mortgages right now, I think it tears off into two different sections. The first being affordability. So there is a really big difference between a variable rate mortgage right now and a fixed rate mortgage. So people are looking at that and they're saying, I don't want to lock into something that's at 4% for five years when there's the possibility that I could make, you know, or sorry, have it be more affordable in the meantime until it gets to that 4% point. So why not take the lower rate? And even if it does get up to 4%, like they've still saved money in the meantime. And the second part of it is that the way that we qualify mortgages. So we use a qualifying rate of 5.25 or your contract rate plus two, whichever is higher of the two. So that means that since rates are at 4% right now, if it's contract rate plus 2%, then we're qualifying at 6%. So people immediately lose um, their ability to purchase if they're taking a fixed rate mortgage. So they have to take a variable rate mortgage to get into the market. And you know, with variable rates, you can lock into a fix. So it's kind of a workaround where you can get into a variable rate mortgage. And then if you do want that fixed rate product, you can lock into a fix afterwards. Yeah, it's actually an insight I never even even thought of. Um, so really, so it's not just the, the, the um, smallest payment, but also, you know, what's going to maximize your buying power, I suppose. So, so I guess then, you know, on that note, because you're qualifying at, qualifying at the lower rate as a result of the way the stress test is structured, um, people are, are functionally taking on the maximum. And I, and I guess it's a necessity in the current market. They kind of have to do this in order to be competitive, but people are functionally taking on the most debt that they possibly can on that given day that they go to make a purchase. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is because our fixed rate mortgages are moving so quickly, you can have an approval one day that is valid. And then literally the next day it's invalid. So it's kind of like the only that? way that you can, well, because the it's contract rate plus two. So if you have a contract rate that's at 4% right now, and then the fixed rates change for that lender and they go to 4.14, then you have to qualify at 6.14. So it's like every single lender has a different rate that they're qualifying their mortgages at, and they're all changing at different times. So this is interesting. Yeah, that's it, the rate hold. Don't they have three to four months where they can hold on to that? It's probably if they have a rate hold. But the problem there is, let's say they have a rate hold in with one lender, and then it's not like something comes up in their application, or it's not accurate, or sometimes credit bureaus don't pull everything. 
So let if that happens and they were qualified with one lender and something is off in the application, they might not qualify with another lender or have another rate hold in with another lender. Hmm. It, so, so it's sort of like a gamification and is that, I guess that's only, you're only really seeing the broker channel, but sort of a gamification of the lending market in order to try and establish a bit of a competitive advantage on, you know, or, or I guess to do what it takes to get a house in, in the current market. Is that, has that slowed down over the past like X amount of, um, weeks as, as prices have come down or, or is the race against the clock to get, uh, a decent rate in a, in a rate hike environment outweighing that? Like what, what's. Uh, on the on the credit side, like, is it are people rushing to to save capital costs, or are they are they waiting to to save on purchase costs, purchase price, let's say? And Daniel, They're feel free to about purchase answer. price. So then, so then, are are a lot of people like sort of wait, say saying, yeah, you know, I might wait. I'm not the, the I'm not super rate sensitive here. I'll wait it out if the price is going to come down. Like, does that kind of seem to be what's happening? All it's really point. yeah. Go oh, ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go right no, no, no. Oh no, please. You go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say all excellent points. Not really much more can be added, but I like to look at it. I mean, there's really two different um, buckets, if you will, of potential purchasers. So there's ones that are unfortunately at the uh, the victim of um, you know the qualifying benchmark and any changes to the fixed rates, as Abby mentioned. Then you have the other bucket who really their income is in such a level, um, their debt service ratios, their credit, it's so untouchable. They're not even remotely phased by these concepts and most people are. So the first bucket, I mean, people are generally grasping whatever they possibly can to get into the market to Bridget's point. Is that a great idea? Um, that could be argued, that can be challenged and questioned, rightfully so. Uh, to another point about um, the broker's job at educating these clients and purchasers, um, I can't speak to the entire industry, but the ones who, um, you know, uh, show up to work and do the right thing by the client, there's always standard disclosure of material risks, at least there should be, not verbal, verbal is the conversation, but also in writing, most should have at the very least a disclosure that, you know, if you choose a variable, um, your cost will, the rate will fluctuate accordingly. Um, and just a slew of other material risks. I want to mention one other factor too. Um, half the time, the brokers actually get the application on purchases. I'll say half, most, some. We're still not even the first call. I, a lot of what we're seeing, at least what we're seeing on our side, what I'm seeing is clients have been to at least one or two different office branches, banks all together whole different bunch of feedback, um, uh, makeshift kind of verbal pre-approvals, that's perpetuating these buyers running in. I mean, these pre-approvals on paper, they don't hold much weight, but they at least um, enable them to go under contract. And what happens when they approach closing and a formal underwriting is actually executed, there's a huge difference of whatever they allegedly heard at the initial meeting, whatever was on a piece of paper, um, compared to what they're actually dealing with. So in some cases, we're seeing, you know, we're the second or third meeting. And and um, I mean, this could go into a whole other conversation about, you know, the regulation or education at the branch level. I'm not going there and I'm, I'm not even implying there's an issue there. But I mean, this is the reality of the matter. A lot of times it gets to us and, you know, at one point of 5% down who, well, maybe in, you know, uh, in the past when valleys were a bit lighter under the million. But I mean, somebody could have walked into a bank branch and said, yep, you know, mom and dad and family, we're buying a house with 5% down. 
that hits underwriting, they're a minimum 20%. If not with a conventional lender, then they're moving to a B lender. And in the absolute worst case, if they're under contract, they got to close privately. Um, whole other topic now is the spread between A and B. I mean, B was a good fallback, so to speak. If at one point B rates, you know, were maybe you know, half a point, a point, a point and change over an A rate. But when now this B rate, the B lender is now, you know, basing in the, you know, high, high fours, low to mid fives. I mean, this B is now like, is not even a fallback. I mean, people are either, hey, I'm, I'm qualifying at prime or conventional or I'm out. Is really what we're is really what I'm seeing at least. Really interesting, actually. I appreciate that insight. Um, I actually want to try and tie this in a little bit to you know the discussion that we we're having with with Terrence originally as well. Um, what because I don't think we we really got exactly to to where I was was hoping to kind of land because I think that and actually somebody responded to one of the tweets that that I put out uh, about this space. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and put it in the nest, but it was basically like the fastest growing household size in Canada right now is, is one, right? So you're starting to see a lot of, a lot of people living in your, on their own. And a lot of that happens as, you know, not on the one end is a lack of household, new household formation, but on the other end is the, the separation of existing households. And so, um, you, you know, my question is, and this could be for, for um, Daniel, um, Abby mortgages and, and Terrence is when we start to see people separating, because, um, and, and, my the context here my thought process is do is there a, an opportunity for this this trend this uptrend that we're potentially seeing in in divorce to create a degree of financial stress that could impact the market at a relatively systemic level especially from my perspective because those are larger households and that's sort of where i'm seeing the shakiness in the market um, uh, at least from from where i stand um so the question is you know you see these two households and you know when they when they currently own, maybe they could probably still qualify for the house they're living in today. Let's say um, at, at its at its price because they have a combined income, you know, of a hundred and whatever it is thousand dollars, or and so they're you know they're they're decently well off. But once they've separated on an individualized basis, like does, it gets to the point where probably neither of them could could qualify to purchase the other one out, as an example, or um, or even if they wanted to replace their existing lifestyle. Um, you know, they, they couldn't afford to even do that. Right. Uh, on, and maybe both, maybe just one of them, but like what, so what are you seeing there, uh, Daniel, uh, B mortgages or Terrence on when people, once they've already separated, trying to go purchase a new property, um, and not being able to replace the existing lifestyle. Is that a common kind of common thing that's happening in the market? We're starting to see sort of like a downsizing of, of lifestyle as a result of, um, of divorce separation, et cetera, in the market. I'll mention one thing. I think some some cases what we've seen recently is um, they're at the age where if they're splitting and the proceeds of the sale aren't sufficient to either, you know, a purchase in a similar location or, you know, had a two, three, four hours out of the city. Some are actually moving back home with their parents who are probably within, you know, three to five, eight years span of unfortunately passing away. Um, and in these cases, I mean, these are for the most part free and clear homes, um, you know, uh, around a million and plus, right? So it's kind of unfortunate. I guess it's a circle of life, but um, that's one thing we're seeing. So they're not rebuying. They're going to take what they net and they're going to head back to mom and dad's. Um, and they're not 30, you know, they're in their 50s. Um, I know. So um, that's just one thing I wanted to mention. 
and, and in those cases, those are like like what what happens with the kids in those scenarios as an example. Like I don't know, just I don't know if you have a specific example. Just just a few of those. The kids were for the most part like they're in their late uh, they're in their late twenties, um, early thirties, either in their rent cycle or they managed to buy you know a starter base condo or starter you know town or semi. Uh, can't really give an example to that extremity, but very good question. I just I wish I had. I'll send it over to Abby. Yeah, go ahead, Abby. Yeah, so um, in the divorce cases that I've handled, it's definitely a huge shock to their lifestyle. Um, and it seems like they've both gone to pretty much opposite sides of what they're used to and just moving into super rural areas or properties that are kind of, I don't know what to say, like dingy. Like they're just shacks, right? And completely changing everything that they were used to. So. I think there's going to be this sort of shift where if there is a huge increase in divorces and they are moving out of these um, higher price point houses, and then you have two people that are now going into an already competitive market where you have your investors, you have your first time buyers, and now you have, you know, single incomes, it's going to create like, I don't know, just a a lot of um, demand in one area and then have this like, gap in between yeah fair enough um i actually i had um somebody um send me a message in regards to um the variable rate um and i want to get some some clarity here because this 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 comes up a lot um so maybe we can we can put an end to it um somebody said your payment on a floating rate mortgage does not change when the prime rate changes fyi and i believe that with the big six um three i think Three lenders have payments that change. Three lenders have payments that, that stay the same, and they just change the amortization. Can you guys shed some light on that, and then we'll, we'll maybe let Terrence um, jump back in about the, the sort of divorce and requalifying kind of thing. Um, so, so sorry, variable rate with big six. Um, prime goes up. Does the payment change? In what scenarios? So there's two types of variable products. You have a traditional variable product, which the payment doesn't change, but your amortization has the possibility of extending or decreasing um, just because more of your payment goes towards interest or your principal, et cetera. Or you have an adjustable mortgage where that's where your payment fluctuates with every increase or decrease. So it's both and neither. <laughs> uh, do you know which, like, because there, there, there is, I think, of the big six, there's three lenders that have payments that do increase and three that don't. I, I'm with National and my payment did go up, so... Uh, Royal Bank doesn't. I know that. I believe TD doesn't as well. Yeah. Yeah, TD doesn't. Okay. What I've seen, anyways, in the client base, we have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know that MCAP does. Okay. Do you guys think? I guess is, is MCAP a, a side? I guess it is. Eh? Yeah, a bit yeah. of amalgamation, right? They got they got a couple subsidiaries. They're Prime, they're A, Abbey, if I'm not mistaken, and they're they have a B B uh, channel as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they have A and B. Okay, fair enough. Um, Terrence, did you want to touch on sort of what I was me- mentioning before? I'm not sure if you see these divorces far enough down the line after people, but, but like if people are trying to requalify, is that is that something that I, I just am making the assumption here that homeownership uh, is such an important uh, piece of the puzzle with um, with these kind of life changes that um, you know it's a discussion that people are having early on. And it's like, are, I guess like the question is like, are people fighting over, Oh yeah. Like, well, you're, you're going to be able to buy a house 
um, but I'm not, so I should get this house. And you know, I mean, how what kind of creativity is happening at the level of, of buyouts, et cetera? Like, what do, what do you see in there? Yeah, I think it becomes uh, keeping in mind. So my perspective is uh, very niche because I I tend to deal with litigation, which are people fighting over things. It's rare that I get people agreeing, which is the I lost it there. Of, Sorry, I lost oh, it there for a second. Can you hear me now? We can hear. Yeah, I can hear. Okay. Yeah, so by and large, most divorces are amicable, and people are able to make responsible financial decisions for themselves. People, I see the very front end, basically, and I would say that the majority of people prioritize continuing their way of life, which usually means for, for you know, obviously there are high net worth people who don't feel it, but by and large, people will rent a house that is in an area and is of a similar size, particularly those with school-aged children, rather than buy and move away. Now, that's very specific to my type of clientele who are generally of a higher socioeconomic status. Uh, they're generally in Toronto, work in Toronto, um, a lot of professionals. So I, I would say that that is, if you're looking for a market trend from that demographic, I think you're seeing a lot more people push to renting single family detached homes rather than downsizing or leaving their their area of comfort for a cheaper way to own. But I think when, when I deal with people who are, for instance, going through mediation or dealing with things in a more amicable way, they're able to be more creative and they're able to, so it, it can be an opportunity for some people to utilize, okay, you have this big pool of tax-free funds to, you know, set yourselves up it's a good way to avoid when you have things like spousal support which is taxable at the hands of the recipient you can rather than waste that money you can use the tax-free resources and keep the spousal support in the hands of the would-be payer uh, i'm not going to go into detail on all that but tax efficiency starts to play a large role when parties are willing to compromise but yeah it, it, it very much depends on the ability of the parties to sit down and make thoughtful, responsible decisions and just how much money they've got, unfortunately. Is, is tax efficiency something that's like allowed to be discussed? Like it, it, are you allowed to, to make a tax favorable divorce? Like, I mean, oh, it's, it's, it's a huge part of what we do when we're dealing with, even in court, judges are obligated to understand principles of taxation and make decisions based on, you know, when we have certain individuals who are making money, uh, you know, not, they're not employed by someone else. We have situations where we have to gross up their income for the purposes of support. There, there are a lot of things that considerations that are taxation based in the family law and in the state law. Uh, so yeah, in short, the you know when you're creating a separation agreement, taxation and tax efficiency is a huge consideration for people because they're they're trying to maximize what they take out of this. Uh, Terence, I have a question, and I it has nothing to do with the market really, but um, a lot of people wonder about this. So one question is if they already own an investment property and then they get married. 
Um, mm -hmm. Does this investment property automatically become, you know, divided by two if they divorce? That's number one. Number two, if they are married and one of them, you know, let's say gets an inheritance and buys an investment property under only their name, can that be right. separated from being divided by two? Okay, so investment properties are dealt with differently than the matrimonial home. Generally, when, when I've been speaking today, I'm considering people that have a home they live in most of the time. When you have an investment property, uh, it's dealt with differently. It's dealt with like a normal asset. And when you bring it into the marriage, you can deduct value that you've brought into a marriage upon divorce. So when you're getting divorced, there are essentially two snapshots that we take one on the date of marriage and one on the date of separation and the financial situation of both parties and the value accrual in that period in between the two snapshots is what's important for division purposes. Everything before tends to stay in the hands of who brought it, except for a matrimonial home and everything after stays in the hands of those who kept it. That obviously gets played with when we have a situation where we're mediating. And that's why mediation is so great because you can, as we said, as we've been speaking about, use tax efficiency to maximize what the parties are taking out of the marriage. Um, to your second point, as far as inheriting property, money, whatever the case may be, if you inherit property prior to marriage, it is generally excluded. So uh, we use a term called the net family property when dividing property between divorcing spouses. And the net family property is just an accrual of all the value of everything you own. And you want to be able to deduct as much as you can from your part of the net family property because then you get a payment from the other side, ideally. And property that you inherited during the marriage is excludable so long as you have not commingled any of the if it's financial assets you haven't put it in a joint bank account that's avoidance of commingling if it's a property that's even easier not to commingle so long as it's not jointly owned or anything like that but that can get very complex and it, it can turn on a fact that pattern basis so that, you know that's just a very broad understanding of how it's treated I so think that yeah. So wait, if, if, so you know how a lot of couples nowadays, they get gifted money from their parents to buy a mm -hmm. house. So if one set of parents gives them, you know, 500,000 to buy this house, um, when they get divorced, that 500 K is divided by two. And it's not just given to that, that child, right? Yes. So I have a lot of this happening. Parents come to me asking how to protect gifts because the gift goes right into this matrimonial home and it becomes part of the equity of the home, which is split, as you stated. If what you do then to avoid it is you create a loan document in the background and it's a passive loan document, then it, there doesn't have to be any payments or anything like that. And it's essentially just something that you can pull out if and when the parties get divorced, you can say this is always a loan. It's a charge against the estate of both parties and that way the, the individual who is not the child of the gifting parents is still held liable for his or her half of that gift. So 
it's a little workaround that tends to work in the courts, but everything, as I, as I said, it depends. That's a good loophole. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? They It's funny because another lawyer, lawyer was saying that, you know, if parents are giving money, they should actually write a letter saying this is not a loan and we're not expecting it back. And I think if you're getting a mortgage, I don't know if you can separate these documents where the mortgage doesn't see this, but if you're getting a mortgage and they know it's a loan, they're not really like, you see well, what I right. mean? Like, you're not going to be qualified for the same. Yeah, you obviously don't show your, I know there are lots of brokers here. You obviously don't show your broker to do this stuff. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, I got it. It's a little bit gray area, but it's it's something that um, yeah, of course, if you're you, you generally need a letter from the parents saying that it's a gift to get the loan, whether that be from the bank or the broker, or whomever. But it's uh yeah, it's something that when it goes to litigation, you, you put your evidence against mine, and we see it. generally they accept the fact that it was a loan and that the parents should be compensated, but. It depends, as I said. Uh, out of curiosity, you know, mentioning uh, along uh, Nazma's line of questioning about investment properties, is there, are you seeing more of that? Like, it sounds like you represent a pretty sophisticated clientele given, you know, just the areas and, and assets that you're working with. Is there an increase in, in that becoming a component of, of divorces? Like, you know, because I think we're sort of seeing the generation of, or at least in the past two years, more and more people, um, you know, pulling out a HELOC and going to, and maybe, or, or keeping their, their existing house and then renting that one out and buying, or, you know, keeping the condo, renting it out and buying a new house, et cetera, et cetera. Like people trying to build portfolio build to get exposure to Canadian real estate or whatever outside of the primary residence. Is it becoming a bigger component in, in divorces over the last, you know, couple of years? Huge component. So with the higher net worth people and even people who are not necessarily, you know, making a ton of money from employment, but people who are smart with their real estate and other investments. I, I currently have a client who had, they, they worked at the bank for several years and managed to accrue over the course of their, they're in their mid fifties and have about six commercial properties around Toronto. And it's, it's definitely a nightmare to deal with not just how to split these things and who's responsible for the value growth and everything, but dealing with the, again, the taxation issues now become a problem. And, you know, because they've appreciated so much in value, the, the recapture that's now, if there's a forced sale to, pay out the value of that net family property is it's it's difficult and th this kind of I'm glad you brought that point up because it really is a wealth degradation upon an individual who spe spent years building this portfolio and you have an individual now who is probably going to be taxed uh, these are properties that he could have kept and given to his kids and they're all tenanted, and now they're, they're going to be probably be subject to a sale and partition. Uh, at least some of them will be to make the payments, and then you've also got support to consider. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of different issues surrounding investment properties, and people are incorporating their businesses that hold these properties. And that brings another slew of issues. So. And I guess beyond sort of the things that you had mentioned, like are there are there things that people are doing preemptively to 
um, you know, to try and avoid these things. And again, like this kind of just goes like, you know, not, not maybe from a strategy perspective, but more from a data point perspective. Like to me, it's like, are we seeing a change in the complexity of, of asset hoarding, I guess, in the market right now, because, you know, you know, things are, are starting to get ugly, I would say, for the average Canadian household, or maybe not the average Canadian household, but more, things are getting more ugly for more people, I, I guess you would say. Like, are, are people coming to you preemptively thinking about things like this? Yeah, and I think people are getting a lot more, people are getting a lot more sophisticated about how we interact with what we call marriage contracts. I think more people more colloquially know them as prenups. Um, marriage contracts and cohabitation agreements are super useful tools that are obviously very stigmatizing, but they are something that people see the value in. When, when you speak to a lawyer about it and you understand that it's, it can actually work well for both parties and they can understand you know, what to take out of, what they would be taking out of a marriage or just getting on the same page, it, oftentimes I find when I do a marriage contract with someone or with a couple, it gives both parties an insight into what each other have, what the goals are, what their collective goals are. And yeah, that, that's really the best preemptive weapon you have against something like that. And it's unfortunate that our society sees it as something negative. I know coming from a family lawyer, self-serving to say that it's a great thing, but I think it, it saves a lot of headaches. Yeah, fair enough. Um, anybody else uh, have any any questions or or topics you want to discuss before we you know maybe think about wrapping this one up? Um, a little, little shorter than obviously than the, the macro ramblings we get into. What's that, Peter? Well, if we're talking about death, maybe the lawyer Terrence should talk about probate. Yeah, yeah. I don't Terrence, do you touch probate much? Yeah, so I come in contact with probate. I generally deal with estate litigation. So when pro probate is the formal process of the will just being confirmed, so I generally deal, I interact with the state's court when parties disagree that the will is legitimate. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure you guys know as much or more than me about how the, the many different ways you can try to pass property outside of probate because that's always the goal in estate planning. Um, my firm, we do, not me, but my firm do a lot of estate planning and tax efficiency is even more important in estate planning and really it's the only concern. And keeping things out of probate, particularly property and investment vehicles, are the main goal and using trust instruments and joint tenancies, things like that to try to pass things quickly and efficiently are, are the name of the game. Um, if anyone had a specific question about it, I could do my best to answer, but yeah, that's kind of, I think, uh, I think death is a whole other topic because of what you just uh, listed. The tax implications, the trusts. Yeah, I think that's that's a whole other thing. Yeah, death de definitely can bring its own concerns. I think the problem is the fact that it's a difficult conversation to have, especially with an old, an elderly person who sort of sat in their ways, 
And so like, you can't, you know, sort of sit down with, you know, mom and dad who are in their seventies and eighties and go, by the way, guys, I'm not sure if you can just, you know, throw my name on the house because this is what's going to happen. Right. It's, it's always like a really difficult conversation to have. I know that we experienced, um, you know, a little bit of quite a bit of setbacks with, you know, like my mom passed away and when she passed away, we had to deal with probate. It was a conundrum. And, um, you know, like we didn't have those conversations. And unfortunately we were heavily taxed, but then having seen that my father decided to put everything like jointly because he was like, because I pretty much told them, listen, like, you know, your grandkids, it's not for me, it's for the grandkids. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I think at that point it was like a, you know, like a flashbulb moment. And he was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to do this. Right. So. Yeah, I, I think um, the probate one's an interesting. It's actually, it's funny that, you, you know, you mentioned that, Nazma, that it is its whole own topic. I, I tried to get a, a buddy of mine, actually, um, who, you know, he's, we've sent a lot of transactions back and forth over the years. Um, he runs avoidprobate.ca, um, and he's he's big on, like, he goes on the, the I think it's Zoomer Radio, which is, like, the radio for, for boomers, um, and uh and talks about this stuff like fields you know does something similar to what we're doing right now but fields questions from from boomers on on how to do this stuff and it put together some pretty solid um like laid some pretty solid um strategies out for for a lot of clients that i've seen especially on the investment side um and so there's various ways that can be mechanized um to do that but yeah i agree it is it's a very sophisticated topic and and, and one especially when you get you know beyond just the, the primary residence when you're talking about um, investment properties etc and por- whole portfolios changing hands um, becomes very complex. Um, anything else anybody wanted to, to touch on here? Well, we've got these. Uh, these I just want to ask Terrence. I mean, if you could, you know, from everything that you're seeing, if you can give some advice to either couples going into a marriage or uh, couples who are thinking about divorce, like what advice would you give, or, or what should we or they avoid? Yeah, so as far as going into a marriage, um, I think it's very important just communicating your financial goals with one another. Your financial disclosure is not something I guess people think about when they're planning their wedding, but it is far and away the biggest reason why people get divorced. People either think that the other one has more than they do or less and it's just an important factor in in marriage we don't like it but it it is important and having those tough discussions which you're forced to do when you when you get a marriage contract and that's why I think marriage contract can be so valuable not just in dividing assets and contemplating divorce but just having the tough conversations ahead of time so that everyone's got their eyes wide open and as far as people getting divorced um, I think, Nazma, you were saying before, there, there's so many people who kind of put it off and they live in this state of permanent separation, which can work for some people. Uh, you know, that there's no reason to go ahead and get the piece of paper if you don't need to, unless you're going to get married right away. Uh, but what I would say is it is important to get control of your assets, get Put together a financial picture for yourself to understand where you could actually gain from a divorce. Because although it's never ideal to break apart assets, there is there are circumstances where you can you can utilize spousal rollovers and different things that the Income Tax Act provide 
to make things a little bit easier. Um, divorcing couples generally don't want to have to trust and depend on each other, no matter how amicable it is. So if you can have your own assets within your own portfolios, that's always best. And if you can do that tax-free, that's even better. So. Uh, just one last question before, I don't know, I think Jesse would like to speak, but debt, is debt divided by two once they divorce? Yes, so generally it is, but on the same parameters as I said before, if one party brought a lot of debt into the marriage, that debt is not expunged just because you've gotten married. It is added to the liabilities portion of the net family property, and that will be taken into account at the end when there is a payment going on one way or the other. Nazma, did you start? Did you want to curtail that one, Jesse? Did you? No. Did you oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Jesse, did you jump on here? Did you have something you wanted to want to chime in? Yeah, sorry. My my oh, main thing is you. you guys are you got yeah sorry you guys are doing a a great job and I really enjoy it. And I just wanted to give a hats off to Dan for hosting these and Nasma and and Bridget and Peter and Susan and Justice Queen and Liquid. It's great to see you guys uh, chatting about all this stuff um, besides just tweets and stuff. Um, this is super unconventional and unconventional, but for me, I found that I found that, you know, married couples fight about enough things as it is. So I always kept my account separate. Uh, this is, I know this is not like the norm, but it's not because I think that I'm going to spend more than my wife or my wife is going to spend more than me. It's just one less fight to have. And I don't think that most people do that, but it's something that I do. Um, Anyway, sidebar, but this has like been great, great advice from Terrence and great spaces. So Dan, I, uh, I just want to give you uh, hats off. I don't really have anything significant to add, but I just wanted to say kudos. Yeah, thanks. But wait, 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 that separate, that separate bank account, I, I actually see a lot of couples who do that, the separate bank account thing. And Terrence, maybe you can answer this. Does it even make any difference when you divorce? Like if Jesse accumulated, you know, 500,000 and his wife has like 100,000, I don't know. Isn't it no. all just put into one pool? Yeah, no, as far as divorce, it wouldn't matter uh, where it could come into. If Jesse is taking money from gifts from his parents or from a friend or he's inheriting money, then it matters. But if it's just income from employment or investments, no. And to yeah. actually add to that, I actually do the same thing, Jesse. Yeah, I guess the thought is that that it's uh, and it it is actually interesting that you have the same strategy as somebody in your profession. Um, but I guess the the point is that it, it it maybe protects the marriage prior to and and helps to avoid getting to to the divorce part because you're not fighting about it. I guess that's the idea. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. my thing is that um, it's we won't get to the divorce part because we haven't fought about money, which is you know constantly cited as a, one of the biggest factors in terms of couples fighting and getting divorced so anyways that's just how i do it but uh, that's not gonna last long yeah i'll be curious to see with this inflation and rising costs like if if that will lead to more arguments and more you know money problems and more divorce yeah yeah that's what and, and that's why i'm glad we kind of had this conversation earlier on um uh, you know as as the the economy kind of goes through some some pains um and just because you know i think 
heading into that with foresight um, towards what, what could happen and, and what kind of strategies, sort of boots on the ground strategies we can have to, to navigate the changing market. Um, I think it's, it's going to gonna create, hopefully create a lot of value for, for people. And, and I hope that, the, that those listening tonight found value in, in this more, you know, more granular um, discussion. Justice Queen, I noticed you just jumped on here. Did you, did you want to um, say something before we wrap yeah, up? Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say for anybody who would like a good book to read about divorce or separation, or if you're going through divorce or separation, uh, the book is called Tug of War. It's by uh, Justice Brownstone, who is actually a judge that just retired in December, I believe, last year. But it's a really good read. It's very practical. And it's just really good, like simple language. Um, and it's great for like people who are going through a divorce. They're just looking for doing what's best for their children if they have children. So I just wanted to get that recommendation out. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, actually, I did also get another DM. I just want to quickly touch on because I try and get to as many of the questions as I can. Um, Daniel, I guess you're the, our only mortgage guy left here. Um, but um, in, in regards to um, the IRD penalties on, on the fixed mortgages, because, you know, people are saying um, nobody was really discussing that. Did, when, when we were talking about interest rate differential, by the way, for those who don't, don't know the, the term um, IRD, um, basically, you know, it's a, a, a payment that in which you're paying the difference between today's rate and, and the rate that you you locked in at so sort of compensating the bank for you having the ability to go get a better rate in the market um is that is that one of the primary um reasons that you might see people get into variable as well daniel is because they're open and, and we're still obsessive about this you know the opportunity of maybe selling our house for a 90 percent uh year over year growth if it was in bankrupt ontario and uh and buying another house the next year it's a factor for sure. I mean, even when you have a high level discussion about fixed or variable, for the most part, most consumers, even, you know, first time home buyers, thanks to a lot more online awareness and, um, you know, blog articling online, they know this, like they know this right off the bat. So, um, uh, you know, if they suspect that they might be, um, you know, refinancing, um, uh, selling, as you mentioned, one of a few different um, outcomes, they're leaning towards um, variable and just the IRD too. I mean, even to someone in, in the space, I mean, there's no clear cut, uh, transparent formula for this. I mean, sometimes there's online calculators, but I mean, each lender calculates this differently. So, I mean, people like, I mean, the, the same person that would like a fixed rate mortgage, knowing that their payment will stay, you know, constant during the life of the loan. That's usually the same person that says, look, I don't want to be kind of um, in front of the shock when it comes time to processing this or calculating this prepayment penalty. If I know it's three months, I know it's three months, or if I know it's fully open, I know there's no penalty. Um, that's just a comment I could add. Right. So the, the, I guess the agility or the flexibility on the exit is an important piece of the puzzle as well as the reduced costs. Um, I, I just, yeah, okay. just, yeah, just from just the sentiment we gather from whoever we deal with on that. I think I got through all the questions in my DMs here. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're going to wrap up. I really appreciate This is a good good conversation. I want to do more of these um, more granular conversations, uh, at least between the sort of macro stuff as, as uh, you know, the, the Bank of Canada meetings. Um, so if anybody has any topics that you want to discuss, I think I have a couple that I've been in, in chats with people about for the next few weeks. Um, again, still trying to chip away on the, 
the mortgage fraud um, investigative series, and we did get another another cool um, anonymous account posting about it uh, about about the mortgage fraud stuff. So that that the whole thing's getting pretty interesting. Um, so Jesse, if you want to, maybe we can have that conversation as well. A lot of people have been interested in hearing about the, the mortgage fraud stuff. But if anybody has a uh, um, a conversation or wants wants us to have a conversation about something um specific that that they feel will create value for a large audience um give us a shout uh tweet me whatever uh or send me a dm and we can um yeah we can we can try and get it accommodated um otherwise thanks a lot everybody have a great weekend and uh look forward to seeing you all next uh next thursday have a good one amazing thanks guys